Once and for all, once and for all, you offered up your life for one and all, for one and all, the perfect sacrifice. Atoning blood was shed, love conquered when you said it is fair. through today uh, reminds us that the Bible is a book that not only gives us good principles to live by, it, sh- it teaches us wisdom, it-, it does all that, and we thank God for that, but most of all, it's a book that's revealing someone, it's revealing a person, it's revealing the person of Jesus, and it's showing us what he's like, and it's, 
is helping us to worship him. And so uh, more than a book about us, it's a, it's a book about him. And that's what this song reminds us of, Christ the True and Better. This thing's going
If you would, if you would please remain standing and take your Bibles, and we're going to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, and we stand in honor of God's inspired, infallible Word. After I read the passage this morning, we're going to pray for our service, and we want to remember Rick and Dana Franklin, who are missionaries that we support with uh, Arrow Ministries, and uh, they do that out of Canada, training up. Uh, church leaders, and uh, then sending them out. And so we want to remember Rick and Dana this morning. But first, we read 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And you may be seated. Lord, we come to you this morning and our desire is to marvel at you and to be in awe of you and to see you in your majesty. And yet, God, we live life through the course of all that happens in a week and through all that is happening in the world, and our eyes are so easily diverted away from that which is truly glorious and truly majestic. So, God, we ask that you would turn our eyes this morning again, that you would show us Jesus through the preaching of your word, through the proclamation of all that he is and the songs that we sing through the encouragement that we might give to each other. God, would you help us to see Jesus this morning, God, that we would see him not just in a, in a small or trivial or commonplace way, but God, that we would see a glimpse of him and his glory. God, we know that one day Jesus will be revealed and for those who belong to you, we will see Jesus and we will stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. And God, we want to anticipate that. We want to not be distracted. And so, God, use this morning, use us in each other's lives to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would see him and know him and make much of him. God, we want this place, we want these people, we want our hearts to be all about Jesus. And so, um, God, we, we come to you and we know that that's something that we fight in our flesh against, and so um, we ask that you would supernaturally invade and, and change our hearts and draw us again over and over to the precious reality of the gospel, that we would see Jesus Christ crucified 
on our behalf, and yet when we look to the cross, God, that we wouldn't see Jesus on the cross, but rather we would see him as a risen Savior, one who has conquered sin and death, and that in him we may rise again from the spiritually dead, and we can live a new life that honors and pleases you, that has purpose, that has meaning, and that meaning is to make much of the risen Savior. And so that's what we want to do. God, for those who don't know you, may we be living testimonies. May your word do its, its work in hearts that uh, would come here this morning. God, that their eyes would be opened to see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. And so, um, God, allow us as your people to be representations, to be little Christs who would uh, be examples of what it means to follow Jesus. And so um, we commit our lives anew again to you today toward that end. God, we pray for Rick and for Dana that you would encourage them and equip them and strengthen them. God, that you would make them effective in their ministry and that as they raise leaders and train leaders that they would go out and impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we pray for them again this morning. God, we commit this service to you and pray that it would be to your honor and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
even our own uh, way of bringing you praise, Father, but in Christ, in Christ alone, who has transformed us and, and it continues to transform us into his likeness. We pray that this service and, and all, all parts of it would be for your glory this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. When Paul was uh, being transported as a missionary prisoner uh, to Rome, his ship docked at uh, the south of Rome, an Italian port city of Putoli, a holiday resort where uh, fashionable Roman society dwelt, and there was a spa nearby with hot springs, and many of the Roman emperors had villas there. Uh, Putoli lay in the shadow of a great rugged mountain a volcano that hadn't erupted in a thousand years, Vesuvius. Shortly after Paul's time, in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius exploded like a nuclear warhead. Uh, It destroyed Pompeii, the ancient city of Rome. It erupted for 40 hours. Uh, Putoli was spared, but Pompeii was flooded uh, by molten lava, and people were killed. Uh, by the gases and the heat, and then the ash came over them, and the entire, the entire city was preserved by the molten lava which rolled over them. Everything perished, but they were sealed in this volcanic tomb. And it seemingly came as a surprise to the residents, but it wasn't a sudden occurrence. Other cities around Vesuvius had undergone a similar fate. But days before this deadly disaster, warning signs were cropping up that were missed by the people somehow. The ground for for days uh, repeatedly shook for minutes at a time. The mountains made loud sounds. The sea around the city churned up boiling water. Animals fled the city. Despite these obvious signs, Pompeians lived in oblivion until that fateful day, until that day of disaster. And even though the disaster was looming, they were unaware. Today in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10, we see the righteous judgment that is coming. We get into the most uncomfortable of topics nobody wants to talk about, but the coming judgment of God. We will see not only evidence that proves it's true, but the practical properties of it as well. We will see evidence and we will see an explanation. 
what characterizes this coming judgment. What I want you to see today is that there are some bitter things in life, and even bitter things, let's say, like, like coffee, okay? Uh, it can have sweet undertones. And this judgment that is coming is infused not with hatred, but with love, and there are heavy notes of mercy and grace and glory. That's what I want you to see today. Followed quickly on the heels of 1 Thessalonians is 2 Thessalonians, where we are being told to remain steadfast before Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians, it was all about the beloved in Christ, that just urgently loving each other in light of the imminency of Christ's return. But 2 Thessalonians is, is sounding an alarm, really, to remain steadfast and to persevere until Christ returns. 2 Thessalonians is like a blaring emergency warning system siren. Interestingly, first hour today, uh, an amber alert was going off on everyone's phones. And I kept saying, is everything okay? I didn't know, you know exactly what it was. And I was like, beep, 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 beep. Like the emergency warning broadcast system from when some of us were younger. But 2 Thessalonians is like this siren system calling believers to persevere in faith and to remain steadfast in hope until Christ returns, even though you're going through problems, even though you're going through pain, even though you're going through persecution, that you have to navigate these things, painful persecution and painful problems, and battle false teaching and battle even the temptation to false living. In a word, steadfast. Several months after writing for Thessalonians, Paul, who's still in Corinth at the time, gets an update and things got worse. And so he writes the second letter, and the persecution had gotten worse. People were despairing. Uh, false ideas had gotten worse. People were being told false things about the day of the Lord. Laziness had gotten worse, of all things. Christ's imminent return was being used as an excuse not to work. And so Paul helps the church. Paul helps the church do battle. Here's the church, objects of God's sovereign grace, object of his covenantal love, and, and they're to be steadfast, stand firm in Christ's steadfastness as they fight persecutors, as they fight peddlers of falsehood and people unwilling to work. Really brief, brief outline of Second Thessalonians is chapter 1 is this call to persevere with this um, explanation of coming judgment, describing the future judgment. Chapter 2 is all about clarifying the day of the Lord. Chapter 3 is all about how do you discipline those who won't work. It's a very interesting little letter here. And last week we started it off and we saw progress through pain. Progress through pain. Problems due to being human in a fallen world. Like if you got a belly button, if you got a navel, you have the, the uh, that's your membership card into being a human on earth and everyone goes through problems. Believers and unbelievers alike, everyone uh, has problems. If you're a believer, you have Jesus to go uh, help you through the problems. But if you're a Christian, you also will have persecutions that you endure for being a Christian. Persecutions endured for your faith in Christ. And Paul showed this idea of this beautiful uh, picture of progress. They were making their faith and their, and, their, and their hope and their love was growing. But today, we're seeing proof of the righteous coming judgment of God, and it, it, isn't, it isn't pretty. It's pretty serious. 
And the idea is that a persevering church is evidence of God's righteous judgment. Now, some people don't put those two things together. God does. A persevering church is evidence of God's righteous judgment. The steadfast church, persevering in trials and problems and pain and and persecution, is evidence that God will righteously judge one day. God is giving proof of his preservation of his people, but his destruction of his enemies in his preservation of the church. He has promised to preserve his own. He has promised to punish his enemies. And this is what we see in this passage. Verse 5, we're going to see clear evidence that it's based on the perseverance of the church. And then it's going to be followed by four explanations of this coming judgment. The coming righteous judgment. Four explanations. So the evidence followed by the explanations. Now first, the evidence. Clear evidence of coming judgment, evidence of righteous judgment, verse 5. Put your eyes on verse 5. This is evidence. So you're like, how do you know it's evidence? Because God says so. This is evidence. This is proof of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Evidence. Proof. This means it has already been proved. Not just I've got evidence in my pocket I'm going to bring out on the day I go to court and show this, but actual proof by appeal to the facts, not just like evidence in an idea here, but it's already been adjudicated in a court. It's already been proven true. The evidence is this. It's not the sufferings. It's not the sufferings. It's it's not the persecutions. It's the attitude of the Thessalonians while they were going through the sufferings and the persecutions. It's their perseverance. It's their steadfastness in Christ. This is evidence. Their perseverance and their faithfulness is proof positive of God's righteous judgment. That he gives strength enough to face all the persecutions and trials and problems and pain that you go through as a Christian in this life, if you're a Christian, and you do so victoriously, it shows that his judgment is right. His judgment is just. You withstand present pressures and demonstrates then the the righteous rightness of God's future judgment. There is a future accountability. And this accompanying thought with it is there's some reward for sufferers and retaliation against offenders. And and this is the idea that you, you need to understand that righteous judgment in the future is setting the tone for what comes next. Persecuted must understand this. There is evidence with a purpose. It says that you may be considered worthy. They may be considered worthy. Every time we hear the word worthy in the Bible, we're like, I'm not worthy, okay? I'm not worthy of this. I'm not worthy of the, of the salvation I've received in Christ. I'm not worthy of him choosing me. But he did it before the foundation of the world, knowing full well what I would be like. And he, and he did it not because I was so special, but because Christ is holy, and he's going to show forth his glory forever. And he, and he says that you would be considered worthy and the idea is that part of god's righteous judgment is bringing christians through tribulation to bring his people to perfection to complete the work that he started in them so it's not like the idea of make worthy but declare worthy that god declares christians worthy counts them worthy declares you just and it's not based on your human efforts not based on your merit and what, what he's doing here is he's drawing attention to a noteworthy piece of endurance here, and he's saying that the attainment of the kingdom, it is not a result of your work. You're not gutting it out. 
It's due to the grace of God. You're being carried by Christ. You don't do anything to make yourself more acceptable to God or more love-worthy. It's not about what you can do or what kind of life you can build. It's, it's about trusting Jesus that does what you cannot do. That, that your changed life then, the resulting changed life, that even your all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because God gives you the desire to live godly. Your changed life is then a beautiful God-given response to God's grace. But the judgment is in order that, that believers would be counted worthy of the kingdom for which they are suffering. He's saying this. He's saying, look, you've suffered for the sake of Christ, in whose name you are suffering. For God's kingdom you have suffered. This, and the struggle continues. This wasn't, there wasn't an, a, a cap on it at that point. And it continues to this day. So the persevering, Faith driven by its author and perfecter, the Lord Jesus Christ, is proof of God's choosing some to be saved. And if he's saving some people, he will be judging his enemies. Our sensibilities uh, feel assaulted when we hear words like this, but they shouldn't. Steadfast faith can only come from God acting upon them and God inspiring it and it's clear evidence that he will bring them safely to his eternal kingdom and that the, the existence of even this persecution and then the uh, steadfastness of the Christians is manifest proof that there will be a righteous judgment of God one day. And, and by the way, there are two really different gospels getting preached today. And you have to be very vigilant that you don't cave in to the wrong one. It is not about how valuable you are, but how depraved you were. A lot of people are like, oh, it's because I was so valuable that Jesus died for me. No, it's because you were so wretched. God didn't see in you something to die for as if he owed you. God's motive for saving you is not found in you. It's found in him. That God's motivation for saving you is his own glory. That you might be to the praise of his glory. And the motivation for the cross was the glory of God. That the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe did what he did because he wanted to do it out of his own glory. The father expressed love for his son and create a world that his son would die for to redeem those who would forever live to the praise of his glory. And, and you are dearly loved if you're a believer, but you're not primary. That God is pointing to himself all the way in the gospel. He is love. Original sin condemned us. And, and we're rightly condemned, but Christ, Christ, the one of ultimate worth, died for the unworthy. You think of Jesus at the cross saying, it is finished. And, and what happens? In God's due time, if he so pleases, he draws you to himself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And any good work that flows out of your life is a fruit of salvation, the fruit of the Spirit of God in you. 
the, the good works don't save you. Only Jesus saves for God's glory. But it didn't start with us as the center of the universe. That's a false gospel getting preached today. It didn't start with us as the center of the universe. It's about God and his glory. And the proof of his righteous judgment is the perseverance of the church he loves and the church that Christ bled and died for. And you will know if you're persevering in the Christian life, if, if, if you have joy in suffering. You reflect his glory. Perseverance is evidence of coming judgment. And what follows then in these, in these verses that follow is our four explanations of coming righteous judgment. What is it going to be like? What is it like? First, God's righteous judgment is fair. We see it in verses 6 and 7. It is fair, it is just, it is right. Verse 6 says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. God just gave, in verses 6 and 7, the perfect sermon outline. If you want to just preach those two verses. Repay, relief, reveal, there it is. Since indeed. Verse 6 starts, since indeed. By the way, this, this terminology is used of things far beyond uh, the idea of, uh, you know, maybe it'll happen or not. This is the idea of these things are for sure. Uh, since indeed is sp- spoken of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in believers in Romans 8, 9. Since indeed God is just, God considers it just, God, it, God is just, we can expect future righting of all wrongs. God will repay. Jesus taught that there would be woe for those who Go against him and blessing for those who love him. He says that the, the, the repayment will be affliction. He's going to repay with affliction the afflictors. And it comes from the righteous judgment of God. It is repayment from God. It is payback from God. It is justly deserved payback, recompense. It's the pain of wages. The wages of sin is death. It is a full payment of what is due. And it's paid to those who put Christians under pressure and cause tribulation for them and persecute them, not just in the past, but in the present, because and, and, the affliction was and is still in progress of Christians. It's like when you watch those police shows, and I used to love watching police shows when I was a kid. My dad was a policeman in Los Angeles and loved watching Adam 12 and, you know, all units, 211 in progress, you know. The idea is, like, Everyone get there right now and stop what's going on right now. And what he's saying is, well, this affliction is going on right now, and it's going to continue on right now until a day that God afflicts the afflictors. But he's also going to do this in verse 7. He says he's going to grant relief to Christians. It will be given. It's the, it's the relief here is the easing of pressure. It's the idea of when you pull a, a, a bowstring really, really tight and it's relaxing the cords that, of suffering, really, that have been tightly drawn on edge. It's the positive side of retribution. It's relief from the afflictions that tormented them. And it's like Paul right now is like he just pauses. Take a deep breath. Ah, someday relief. 
Oh, for that day. One day relief. When? Verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when. Now, what's really beautiful is that this phrase, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, from that phrase to to the end of verse 10, the words are very rhythmical in the original language, and some have called it the hymn of the second coming, like a song of the second coming. And it's the coming of the Lord Jesus. It literally reads, in the revelation of the Lord Jesus. Not only that the retribution will take place when the Lord Jesus is revealed, but the retribution is part of the revealing, part of the revelation. It's Christ appearing and, and parousia, but it's also apocalyptic. The word we get, our word apocalypse, come, is here. It's apocalyptic. It's an uncovering. It is a, a disclosure. It's a revelation of a person that is right now presently concealed. It's at the unveiling and the the revealing of Christ. And on that day, God's judgment will be fair, just, righteous. There will be blessings for some. There will be judgment for others. It's like Johnny Cash saying, everyone won't be treated all the same when the man comes around. God's going to decide who to free and who to blame when Jesus returns. And no human can take issue with God and say, that's not fair. All five of our kids, I've heard it, I heard it so many times when they were younger. What? That's not fair. I'm like, welcome to that club too. <laughs> Life isn't fair. No human can take issue with God and say, well, God's not fair. God's, God's you know, unfair. Only arrogant, depraved minds question the immortal, invisible God only wise. How can a righteous God pardon the wicked and be righteous? Because he punished his son in my place. And for God's justice to be satisfied, Jesus had to pay the penalty to satisfy the wrath of God. And when the wrath of God was satisfied, the love of God was magnified. And the love of God explains the wrath of God. And this is why perseverance, God's love in action in the church, Carrying the church along is proof of coming righteous judgment. You best be ready. I mean it. You best be ready. Not like all those other people you know. No, just you. You're here. Or those that are watching, you're listening. You're watching. You best be ready. Everyone best be ready. Be ready for, for Jesus to return. The time is up when he returns. There, there is no, the, 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 the lava will flow. In a moral universe, sin cannot go unpunished, and sinners always hope they would ex- escape penalty. Let's say you're doing something in your life right now, and you're like, I hope no one knows about this, and I hope no one has saw it. Well, you know, you live in the time when there's cameras everywhere, right? Right. So there's that. But God sees everything. You know, when you put your head on your pillow, you kind of know that. Your conscience is telling you that. But sinners always hope that they can escape penalty but because God is overall, that, that's impossible. And punishment is the other half of sin. It's going to happen. And either your sins are punished on Christ at the cross or they're going to be on you. That's, that's just the way it is. If I told you anything different, I would be a liar. God's righteous judgment is fair. 
Everyone won't be treated all the same. Everybody's not getting a trophy. Secondly, and this is the second explanation, God's righteous judgment is going to be fierce. It's going to be fierce. Verse 8, it, he comes in flaming fire. Inflict, stop, drop, and roll, right? <laughs> flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance. That's a pretty strong word, wouldn't you say? Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's really clear who it's going to go on. There's fire, flame. The flaming fire emphasizes the glory of the appearance of the Lord. It's a reference to judgment, which isn't frequent in the New Testament. Granted, but the, the idea of fire often associated with the divine presence of God in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3.2, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire. In Isaiah 66, the Lord will come in fire to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire, the Lord will enter into judgment. The fire is, is describing the nature even, even of the robe of the returning Lord. And, and he comes with his terrifying angels. Literally, his powerful angels. And it emphasizes not the power of the angels, but the power of the Lord, whose angels they are. It's about, by the way, this is about Christ's divinity. If you want to find verses that, that are just very clear about Jesus being God, verses like this. It's all about Christ's divinity. God returns when Christ appears. Jesus will be revealed with angels. That's appropriate for God. He's going to punish because he's the judge. That's an activity that, that is, belongs to God alone. Judging. Here the doctrine of the deity of Christ is in full force. God is the judge. And Jesus will inflict vengeance. So many people say, I'm just going to sit in my hammock and not worry about this because I can't see it. He will punish he will inflict vengeance. It's a full, complete punishment. And by the way, vengeance, can't find it anywhere else. The vengeance of God, the righteous judgment of God, is it in stores near you? No, sir, no, ma'am. It is only from God. It is coming from Christ. And who does it go on? On those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. All who don't obey God, all who don't submit to God, all who want to reject the gospel, all who refuse to bend the knee to Christ's rule, all who refuse the lordship of Christ, and, and there, there is, and none of us are, are innocent here, but there is a hell-inspired easing of biblical truth that has been going on for quite a long time. And where there's an insistence on absolutely unbiblical behavior and lifestyles for people who call themselves believers. And they say, it's okay to traffic in this, it's okay to live in this. And God gives no such permissions and assurances where people are saying it's okay to not believe the Bible and be a Christian. Not true. It's okay not to believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again and, be, and you can be a Christian. That's not true. You can just you know, erase every moral absolute that God has put down or every sexual norm that God has put down and still be a Christian. That is absolutely not true. And I'd be a liar trying to please you if I told you it was. Vengeance. 
on those who reject the ultimate revelation of God's saving activity and they neglect the knowledge of God that he has made possible and they reject the light of the gospel of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ and they reject Christ crucified and buried and risen and reigning and returning and the wrath is coming. A young boy once said, what would I do if the wrath of God fell on the earth? He said, I would run to the well and jump in the water. And he went and told his mom, and she goes, well, that's not going to work, son. Uh, the water will boil, and the earth will burn. Billy Graham said, as hell was becoming for many no more than a swear word, sin was also an accepted way of life. If people can ignore what the Bible calls sin, they can quite logically discount what it says about the reality of hell. Spurgeon said, if a man can't preach clearly about hell, he should never be allowed to preach again. One liberal pastor said this, my congregation would be stunned to hear a sermon on hell. Church historian Martin Marty once said, hell disappeared and no one noticed. For liberal Protestants, hell began to fade in the 19th century, and today hell is theology's H word, a subject too trite for serious scholarship. A.W. Tozier said, vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. Picture humanity on a runaway plane with no pilot and it's on a collision course and there's only moments of time remaining. It's like the doomsday clock. And people, though, are caught in their pride and their pleasures and their pursuits, and they don't realize the urgency. America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, pastored in New England in the 1700s. He studied Latin at age six. He was at Yale by age 13. Don't feel bad. We're all in the same boat, okay? Doogie Howser doesn't go here, all right? Uh, he graduated college at age 15. He earned his bachelor's and master's from Harvard on the same day. He was ordained at age 19. He was teaching at Yale by age 20. He became the president of Princeton. He's best known for a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, most famous sermon in American history. He preached it on Sunday, July 8, 1741. He was ministering in tiny little Enfield, Connecticut, and he quietly announced his text, Deuteronomy 32:35, which says, their foot shall slide in due time. Edwards preached very softly and simply, and he warned the unconverted that they were dangling over hell like a spider over the fire. He said, O sinner, consider the fearful danger. The unconverted are now walking over the pit of hell on a rotten covering. Innumerable places in this covering are so weak, it will not bear their weight. The crowd began to cry out as he preached. He was not whipping them up in a frenzy. He was speaking very calmly and simply. And Edward said, let everyone that is outside of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Strong men felt that they were sliding into hell. 
Throughout the night, the cries of men and women were heard throughout the village, and they were begging God to save them. 500 people were converted that evening. Revival swept thousands to Christ. The Great Awakening began. It was spurred on by an awesome awareness of coming judgment. You take a hard look at this doctrine, and it will change your view of sin. Because we do not take sin as seriously as Jesus does. God's righteous judgment is fair, and it will be fierce. There are some people who say, just preach love. Don't preach about hell. Just preach humble and gentle Jesus. Well, guess what? Do you know where I found out about hell from? Humble and gentle Jesus. That's who I learned it from. Third explanation of this day that is coming is God's righteous judgment is forever. Verse 9, eternal punishment is real. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. By the way, every word in Scripture matters. Every word in Scripture means what it says. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The punishment will be eternal and destruction will be ongoing away from God's presence and His glorious power. And they are a classification of people. If you're in that class, there will be some class action from God against you on that day. There is a punishment. It's going to happen. It's the results of, of what God is executing of his judgment. There will be punishment. They will, they will suffer. They will pay the penalty. They will pay the price by way of recompense. There will be destruction. There will be ruin. But it is not annihilation. The loss of all things that give worth to existence is one way to put it. But the penalty is eternal. It is ongoing. Literally, age-long, eternal. Everything depends on the length of the age. In the New Testament, there is no hint that the coming age has an end. It is forever. It is eternal. You, you are separated forever from God's protection and from God's presence. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The final horror of sin is that it separates the sinner fully and finally from God. From the majesty of his power, from the visible manifestation of the greatness of God and his strength. Interesting, you see the contrast here. The, the Thessalonians were feeling the power of human oppression. And Paul's reminding them, God is greater. Jesus is stronger. God's judgment is forever, it's eternal. There is a very real, literal heaven, a very real, literal hell, and anything else does not do justice to the biblical testimony. You've got to take the Bible straight up as it, as it is and believe it. The bare word of God speaks volumes if your heart is humble and hungry for the word of God. Eternal is eternal. It means forever you will be if you're a Christian, you will be with God in heaven forever. If you're an unbeliever, you'll be in everlasting conscious torment apart from God forever. And you can't have one without the other. You can't say, well, you know, there's an annihilation and then we get eternal life forever and ever and ever. Amen. You, you just can't have one without the other. You have, to, you have to handle the inspired, inerrant, infallible, conscious binding, authoritative word of God, the beautiful, perfect word of God, carefully, accurately, precisely. This is what it says. 
Hell is a place of constant torment and fire. It's not a figment of anyone's imagination. It is eternal conscious torment. And sinners in hell are always rebellious against God. And sin is always against a holy God. And sin against an infinite God has infinite consequences. You can see it in the Old Testament. In Nahum. Speaking of God's judgment, he's going to bring on all those who reject him and his anointed. Speaking of Nineveh in that day, and Nahum says the Lord takes vengeance on all his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Who can stand before his indignation? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces before him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. If, you, if you're a believer, he knows you are. He knows you. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Because God's holiness demands that sin be dealt with. Think about how angry you get due to a supposed injustice done against you. Don't take issue with God because he is wrathful against sin. The warnings of hell and judgment are merciful. How many of us sit watching like Jonah, Jonah-like, wishing people to burn, wishing vengeance on people, while God mercifully sends messenger after messenger after messenger telling people to turn to Christ and be saved from coming destruction. C.S. Lewis said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. Spurgeon once preached, as the Lord liveth, sinner, thou standeth on a single plank over the mouth of hell, and that plank is rotten. Thou hangest over the pit by a solitary rope, and the strands of that rope are breaking. A warning by nature is urgent. Someone in my family, not me, but someone I know, I was going to say a friend, but I guess I've already thrown my family under the bus. Someone in my family got a, a warning slip of paper on their car about, you know, your car is going to get towed if you don't move it, but it didn't give any time when it was going to happen. And it was, I, I go, is this a joke? Like, the car, the car will be towed on this day, and it's not filled in. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I kept it. It's, I've got it. I almost brought it today. But a warning by nature is urgent. A few years back, there was a fire uh, in our neighborhood, crested the top of the hill on our block, and emergency personnel went door to door, pounding on every door, yelling, evacuate. Same thing happened to us when we were uh, at a retreat once in um, Westlake Village, and ministry retreat, and, and one in the morning, pounding on every door, you got to leave, and, and you know, the hills were ablaze, we had to leave. That's what you do, you evacuate when the warning comes. But there were people on my block when that, when that evacuation call happened, they're like, we've seen this before. We're staying. Well, that's fine. We left. We, we headed for the hills. Actually, we headed for Irvine. <laughs> you got to heed the warning. There's caution. There's danger. There's an alarm. It, it's going to happen. And, and, and what God is saying is these are the facts and they're undisputed. So deal with that. 
God's righteous judgment is fair. God's righteous judgment is, will be fierce. And then it's forever. And one fourth explanation, God's righteous judgment is final. It's fixed. It's sovereignly decreed. Look at, look at what it says in verse 10. When he comes on that day, when says it all, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's why the church is persevering. A coming day where he will be glorified in his people. A day when his people will be in awestruck wonder and our faith will be made sight. At the moment that he knows he'll be glorified in and by, by means of his glorious might, that glorious day, that beautiful day, that glorious dawn, that radiant hope for which you have engaged in steadfast endurance and borne up under difficult circumstances with blazing hope that day, when he comes on that day, which are solemn words, but also celebratory for us, solemn words making clear the utter finality of what will happen to the wicked, those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and to love and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will incur an infinite, irreparable loss. As one person put it, they will pass into a night on which no morning dawns. The coming is certain, the time is not known by us, and the Lord will be glorious in his glory and will be glorious in his saints as well. First John 3, 2, when we, when we see him, we will be like him. When he appears, we will be like him. And the glory of that day will surpass any glory you have ever seen before, anything you have ever known before, and we will be lost in amazement and awestruck wonder at the glory of God in Christ. I saw one look of awestruck wonder this week. The most awestruck look I have seen in a very long time from my three-year-old grandson, Ezra. And when he heard that I was going to see Matt Papa, his eyes got as big as saucers as if I had told him, I'm going to go see the President of the United States. And in his mind, his papa, that's me, was going to see a celebrity. <gasps> he, it was, it's just priceless. And we treat Matt Papa as a normal guy. He's a humble, approachable guy. But in the eyes of three-year-old Ezra, wow. I mean, we, we think highly of him as well, but probably not as high as Ezra. But all who have believed the gospel, who become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's people, in us will be displayed the, the desired result of the preacher's testimony. Faith will become sight for all who have believed. And God's judgment will be final because it has been sovereignly decreed. Fuel, uh, fools will futilely dispute these facts. But it can't be overturned. God has decreed it. It will happen. He made it clear. He made it clear. He said it in so many different ways for us to receive and believe and accept it. You can't accept the good testimony without accepting the terrifying one as well. So we should grieve over those lost forever in hell, all the more reason to share the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. I mean, think about it. You, you can dress up the corpses all you want, but we're aging fast and these tents won't last and we are going back to dust. And a day is coming. Jesus said, let the sheep and the goats, 
Let the wheat and the weeds grow all together until the harvest, until the judgment. God knows. People want to redefine God as a God who doesn't judge. A God who doesn't judge is not the God of the Bible. Heaven is real. Hell is real. It's not popular. It is true. And when God opens your eyes to that, you find that God is so merciful and so kind because he satisfied his justice at the cross in your place. These are the facts. They're undisputable. There is clear evidence of God's righteous coming judgment. And the perseverance of the church preserved by God and equally clear are these four explanations of fair, fierce, forever, and final judgment. It's been sovereignly decreed. If you think about it, you and I being here today, if you're a believer, anyone who is saved, anyone who's regenerate, born again, it's proof of the righteous judgment of God. Right this very moment, right before us, living proof. The, the preservation of the saints is living proof. The perseverance of God's people, the steadfast faithfulness of God's people because he is faithful. Clear, undisputed evidence given in the righteous life of the church, considered worthy because of the shed blood of Christ for whom we are suffering. But what must this truth do to your heart? How should this hit your soul? How should this change anything about what you were going to do for the rest of the day? It should melt your heart. It should tenderize your heart. It should defrost your heart for Christ and the church and the nations. Like there must be in our hearts a love for Christ that we would have the bright and glorious dawn of of eternity shining in our hearts such that we find it somewhat delicious to savor such thoughts of Christ coming as we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there must be a love in our hearts for Christ's bride. The church isn't a place we just come and feed, but we, we come and meet with our family in Christ, and we do so during the week, and we faithfully fellowship in the fear of God. As Bunyan put it, you cannot stay away. That our, our love for Christ would grow such that our love for all Christians would grow, and especially the Christians in our local assembly. That's why our membership commitment aims are so important. We, we want to gather regularly. We want to not forsake the assembly. We want to not neglect to pray for each other. We want to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Weave our lives together in brotherly love. We want to live pe- peaceably with all. We must love the church. But there must also be in our hearts, a burden for the lost. Spurgeon put it this way, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. And for years after Vesuvius erupted, Pompeii remained buried under 20 feet of hardened lava. Excavations have given us a perfectly preserved Roman city, frozen in time, caught in the act of being itself. What if you were caught in the act of being yourself, frozen in time forever? 20,000 people of Pompeii worshipped two gods, Venus, the love goddess, and Mercury, the, goddess, the god of commerce. And they, they worshipped money and pleasure. The worship of Mercury was evidenced by their economic prosperity, their worship of Venus, because they loved pleasure. Their city walls were filled with immoral 
acts and ads, things drawn on the walls that were, you can't speak of them, and, and immoral ads, and the statues and the sculptures of Pompeii were excavated by archaeologists. They were hidden for many years in the off-limit rooms of Italian museums because they were so obscene. On one Pompeian wall, someone who knew the Old Testament graffitied three words, Sodom and Gomorrah. And like Sodom and Gomorrah, Pompeii perished suddenly by fire. And judgment came swiftly. There was no escape. This world we live in right now is filled with corruption, filled with depravity. It's awaiting judgment. And we don't know when the volcano of judgment will erupt and retribution will come forth from God. Peter said this, The end of all things is near, for the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. I think what gets lost in the excitement is how many are saved, how many are spared. Yes, righteous judgment is coming, but, but believers will not be caught unaware. Not because we are strong, but because Jesus is stronger. Forever our king. It is finished. Christ is the true and better Adam. He has conquered all. No matter what you're going through today, Christ is your sure and steady anchor. One day you'll see that his mercy is measurably more than anything that you could ever ask or think that his glory eclipses your suffering. And that together we would behold the wondrous mystery of, of Christ. And we, we would know that today we are one step closer to home. We are almost home. And for all our days until that day, we would sing the praise of Jesus, our King, our King. Lord, we thank you and praise you. Forever, Jesus, we praise you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Thank you, Lord, for the work you have accomplished. Thank you for what you are doing in and through your church now. Thank you, Lord, that you reign over all. And no trouble here will eclipse you. We praise you. We love you because you first loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we close singing.
Amen. I hope you can sing that with all your heart. I hope it is true about you. If it's not, believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. And once saved, be with the church because the church will be persevered, will be preserved by Jesus, King Jesus. I hope also you take advantage of the many ways uh, to connect with people at Grace in many different ways in groups and other ministries. Mark your calendars for June 12th. Uh, Go with Grace campaign launch party for our multi-purpose building. There'll be desserts and a presentation and music by the Blue Diamond Southern Gospel. So make sure you plan to be there. Let's close with 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you, we praise you. All our days, may we sing your praise and may we live for your glory in your strength. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.